Amen. You may be seated at this time. Um, Kids are also dismissed. Are we dismissing kids this morning? Yes, kids go with Miss Mary right over here to your left. Um, As always, I'm so honored to be with you this morning. And um, I'm just honored to be able to open God's word and to bless you with it. Um, As a pastor, I have come to find that what my job is simply to do is to, to lead you guys in a way in which God can work in your life and work in our church. And um, in a lot of ways, if I can truly walk with the Lord, all I have to do is get out of the way and let God move. And so I'm going to try and do that this morning. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Uh, you may have heard of Psalm 23 once or twice in your life. Um, most people believe that Psalm 23 is the most well-known passage in all of the Bible. Okay, definitely in the Old Testament, um, but in terms of more than just one verse, you know, maybe John 3.16 might be known more so, but in terms of a, a large chunk of Scripture, Psalm 23 is probably uh, the most well-known passage in all of the Bible. And so let me paint this picture for you that I think is very exciting this morning, is that this is the Bible that God wrote, okay? So this is the book that God wrote. It's his word to us. And so every word is important, 2 Timothy 3.16. Every, every word can change your life, even the these and the a's and the it's and the stuff about the oxen and the donkeys and the 25,000 rams. You might have read that in the Old Testament, kind of some random stuff. All of it can bless you. But if this is really God's word, and if this thing that we're going to approach this morning is the most well-known passage in all of God's word, like how powerful are these words that we're about to read? And I want you to feel comfortable in church, and I want you to feel comfortable with God. I want you to be able to pray to him. But I kind of want you to tremble when you come before God's word, amen? Like, when you open the Bible in the morning or in the evening or whenever you get alone with God, I kind of want you to come a little bit scared as to what God's going to do in your life and what he's going to call you to do through the scriptures. I mean, when I open this, I'm thinking... This thing that we're going to read this morning has ministered to millions and most likely billions of people in the history of humanity. Whatever it is about these words that God has put in here, it is powerful and it is comforting and it resonates with the very deepest needs of our souls. If you have come in here this morning hurting or needing a word from the Lord or you're desperate in some way, you need clarity, you need guidance— You've come to the perfect place within the perfect word of God. And as I read these words this morning, this is King David writing in a tough time in his life. As I read these words, as we we hear David's prayer, I don't just want to explain to you this text. I don't just want to tell you why it's so popular. I don't just want to give you a thesis. As I read these words, as I read them over you, I want you to interact with them with your soul. I want these words to mean something. Because if we will allow ourselves to approach God's word with willingness, approach his spirit with anticipation, God will move in your life in ways you have not yet seen. Let's stand together. Let's take this seriously. Let's read Psalm 23 with expectancy let's allow our souls to interact with the word of God. 
The words will be up there on the screen for you. You can read them along with me, or if you'd like, you can close your eyes, and you can let me read this psalm over you. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You may be seated at this time. Recently, um, in our staff meetings and in other people that I meet with in the church, when we begin a meeting, um, we do something that's kind of different, and to be honest with you, it's a little bit awkward at times. Um, We will oftentimes start a meeting by sitting in the room together in complete silence. And in the 21st century, when you sit in a room with somebody in complete silence, it's super weird. Because, like, the TV's not on, and the phone's not ringing or chiming in from a text, or um, nobody's talking or telling you something. There is something powerful when you quiet your soul, you get rid of the noises and the distractions of this life, and you let God's word run through you. And this whole summer is about not just knowing God's truth, but literally experiencing it in your life. And I don't know how you've been through this prayer initiative this summer, but I have this fresh expectancy in my soul of the Holy Spirit. Like, I've been excited recently, and it's like all of a sudden my whole view of faith is completely changed. I I no longer believe something because it's just what I'm supposed to believe or it's it's the right thing necessarily. I mean, while that's still true, I'm excited to follow Jesus. And it's like even in, we're like one month in, right? We're four weeks in. We haven't been in this prayer initiative very long. And and I've given myself, even as the pastor, just to more so prayer than I would have before. And what God is doing in my soul is I have so much more optimism than I've ever had before. And it's not like a health and wealth gospel of God's going to give me a car and, you know, we're going to get a vacation home. Which house in I would like that? That'd be nice. But it's not like that. It's like God loves me and it's going to be okay. That's my whole outlook on life, is that God loves me, and it's going to be okay, and no matter what happens to me when I wake up in the morning, I have an exciting journey ahead of me with a God who loves me, and I have this idea that I'm being led by still waters, and that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I believe that, and it is changing me. 
And what Psalm 23 says is this. If you want everything, listen up. This is how you get it. To want God is to have everything. To want God is to have everything. Not to have God is to have everything. Because you can't have God on your own free will. You only get God because God gives himself to you. You only receive the forgiveness of Jesus because he gives it to you. You don't go get the grace of Jesus. You receive the grace of Jesus. All you have to do is simply want. And Psalm 23 says that to want God, to desire him, to follow him, is to have everything. And I love how David says it. I shall not want, just in general, right? Not that I won't want this or that. I won't even need to want. He's not saying I'm not going to want things. David is saying, I don't even need to want things. Because if a need arises, it's already been provided for. Do you have enough faith to believe that? Because if you don't believe it, you won't receive it either. I can never experience the full fruit of the love of my wife if I don't believe that she loves me. She can love me to the moon and back, and if I don't truly believe that she loves me, it will not mean a thing and it will not produce fruit in my life. And the Psalms are an experience with God. And billions of people have experienced the power of God's word in this text. And they have chosen to believe it and depend on God and have thus done great things. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The NIV says it like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The New Living Translation says, The Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. What do you want this morning? We're really bad wanters, aren't we? Maybe you're better than me. I'm horrible at wanting. I want all the wrong stuff in life, right? I want McDonald's right now. McDonald's is not good for me. I always want like really bad food. I want beverages that will give me a belly. I want Um, unhealthy things. I want to sleep a lot. I want to sit around and watch Netflix all day. I mean, I want a lot of things that are not good for me. My wife has a really good story about being a bad wanter. When she was in high school, she was a junior, and she sat next to like the high school hunk named J.D. King. He was the, the big, strong football player guy, and she sat next to him in Latin class, and um, he was a great athlete, not the smartest guy. That's a typical scenario, and um, she really wanted to be this guy's girlfriend, of course, long before she knew me. Um, it was so fun at this stage of our marriage, talking about previous, like, loves. It's so funny. It's, it's, it's very ironic. But she was sitting next to this guy and wanted to have a relationship with him. But, you know, to get a relationship going, you have to have a break, right? Something's got to happen. You've got to have an experience or a time together. And uh, they actually got nominated to the homecoming court together uh, that year, their junior year. And they were paired together. So she thought, man, this is my break. Okay, I want to date this guy. This is great. We're going to get time together. It's going to be awesome. And so the homecoming court week begins, you know, a lot of festivities. And the first activity in which they're supposedly going to get to not only interact but take a picture together is the homecoming pictures. And she shows up, and J.D. King doesn't show up. 
And so it's all these pictures and these couples and these homecoming court, and she's in this picture absolutely by herself. And so it didn't start off well. And then came the actual homecoming game, right? And they were going to walk out on the field together, and it was going to be their moment where not only were they going to be together and be holding hands, but everybody was going to look out and see them together, including his girlfriend. And I don't know if he had a girlfriend or not. Um, And they walked out together, and it was a horrible experience because he was mad because he was on the football team and they were losing and he was smelly and he was kind of rude and he didn't really want to be there, didn't really care about her. And at the end of it, it was what you call an unmet expectation. She wanted something that was not good for her. And what you need to realize is that you are a finite creature and you can only want so much in this life. Okay, God is infinite. There's no limit to God, but we're finite. There's limits to everything that we can do. There's limits to our strength. There's, there's limits to our power. And there's limits to how many things we can actually want. And the problem is we take our wanting energy and we direct it to all these other things and we don't have much energy left for God. And the reason why you think this morning that you're one thing away from happiness is because not that one thing will satisfy you. You've just simply directed all of your wanting energy to this one thing. But then you'll get it, and you'll be on to the next thing, and the next thing. And eventually you realize there is no shortage to things that you can want in this life. But David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If the Lord is your shepherd this morning, It's tough, but we need not want. What if you could trust that whatever God gave you was what you needed? What if you had enough faith to believe that whatever God provides in your life, what if you just simply wanted him and said, you know what, God, I'm going to want you, I'm going to love you, I'm going to pursue you, I'm going to obey your commandments, and whatever you give me in my life, that's what I'm going to be okay with, and that's what I'm going to trust is best for me. The real problem is we just don't trust God. We don't trust his provision. We don't trust what he's given us. We want these still waters, we want the green pastures, we want all these things, but we don't want to trust God. But what David says is that because God is my shepherd, he's the one who's going to lead me to still waters and green pastures and paths of righteousness. When I was in college, my life was going in a million different directions. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're at a season where your life could go one of a million different places and you have no idea. That was college for me. Who am I going to marry? What am I going to do for a living? What's my future going to look like? Where am I going to live? And I memorized Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. And I beg you to memorize this passage because it will, it will revolutionize your life and it will be an anchor for you. Jesus says this, Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. No, 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 listen. Do not be anxious about anything. Not even what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall wear. For the Gentiles, normal people, seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Faith is an uncertain journey with a certain outcome. 
It's like every movie you've ever liked. It's this uncertain journey. Like the, the, the ideal movie is an uncertain, exciting journey, and yet there's a happy ending, and they win in the end. We like that movie, I believe, because that's our life. It's an uncertain journey. I don't know what's going to happen next year for you, but I know for those who are in Christ Jesus, you have a beautiful inheritance and that you will uh, dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that goodness and mercy will follow you. We are called to want God and enjoy the ride. talking with a friend earlier and he was talking about how he's in one of those seasons where he's really needing God to provide for him and he's like I just don't get it you know I've he's provided for me all my life everything I've ever needed and yet once again I find myself doubting if God's really going to come through why did Jesus tell us to seek the kingdom first Because there's nothing good outside of what God is doing and the kingdom that's coming. God is renewing this broken world. And, and, if, and if we can't find ourselves desiring this new thing that he's doing, we won't find what Jesus calls living water. I'm not denying that those passions and things you desire won't satisfy you for a moment. but it won't bring you what you really want. Because wanting God is having everything. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I love that phrase, even though. You know what even though is? Even though is hope. (laughs) He's like, I know this isn't going well. I know it's bad. David's like, I know people are trying to kill me. I know they're trying to take over my kingdom. I know that they want to take all my possessions and hurt my family because David's got it worse than you. I hate to break it to you. Some of you have it really bad, but not as bad as David because even if we have it bad, David had way more to lose in terms of earthly possessions than us, okay? David's life was on the line. People are trying to kill him, dethrone him. I mean, back in David's day, it wasn't as civilized to some degree as it is today. Kings were thrown over all the time and when a king was thrown over, he wasn't voted out, he was murdered, right? When a king was overthrown, it wasn't like they voted him out, and then he got to go live in his mansion like presidents when they get voted out of office. It's like, oh, I'm not the president anymore. Now I get to live in Hawaii for the rest of my life and hang out with my grandchildren. It wasn't like that in David's day. If he ceased to be the king, he would most likely cease to live. And somehow he finds the courage to say, even though, Can you say even though in your life? Can you find the even low, the even though in that really tough situation? My job is horrible, but even though I, I'm, you know, my marriage is struggling, but even though. And I want you to notice something in verse four that I think is very powerful. After he says, even though I know it's bad, but God's with me. All of a sudden, in verse 4, it shifts from third person to second person. He says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Notice that, verse 4. 
your rod and your staff. It's no longer um, he makes me lie down, he leads me, he restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness. All of a sudden, God is you. You see, in the valley, God becomes very personal. And when we are going through the toughest times in our life, we need personal love. Whenever you're going through a tough time, you don't need a concept, you don't need a truth, you don't need a doctrine. Those are good, those are always there. But when you're really struggling, what do you need? You need someone to love you and to be with you and to just be there to cry with you. Just to sit in the room silently with somebody. You know, sometimes it's not to say, well, God's going to work it all out. That's not the truth to tell everybody at every time. Because we're personal beings, like God is a personal God. And in the toughest times of your life, God will go from being this ambiguous kind of idea to somebody who is literally walking with you. This is where Jesus really comes into the picture. Because Jesus was God, but he was God who was a person. He was personal. You know, it was like Muhammad came, and he he was testifying to God. And Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, he's like showing God. And and there's all these people saying that, if you come to me, I can get you to God, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, And let me give you some thoughts about God. And Jesus said, no, 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 I am God. God is personal in our weakness. He is intimate and he is close. And I don't just preach this because it's some thought or some truth or something that I've, you know, read in a commentary or, and I've experienced this this past year. I mean, Halsey and I, we, we've been in the valley of, of her mom passing. It's called the valley of Halsey's mom passing away tragically, unexpectedly, at the age of 46, and I've, I've talked about it before, you know about it, it just stinks. It's just this huge valley, and, and we're in it. And it's in those moments where you're not looking for a theology, you're not looking for some inspiring, pithy quote, you're not, you're not interested really in the mystery of God anymore. You want to know exactly who he is, and you want to know that he's right there beside you. In pain and in valleys, we need personal love, not conceptual love. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I've experienced the the comforting love of the Holy Spirit in this season. You see, the problem with a lot of you guys and a lot of what you view as God is it's like this ambiguous, vague concept. It's like a force or it's like a, you know, a thought or it's like in nature in general and it's all this ambiguous stuff. And once again, real truth and love never hides itself in ambiguity. Truth is honest. Truth is open. Truth is precise. Love is precise. And when we're in our darkest moments, we don't want a force of the universe that kind of rushes past us occasionally. We were created to interact with a personal God. And when God came incarnate of a man, his name was Jesus, 
he revealed God to us in such a specific and personal manner. And then he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is my favorite part of it, by the way. It's kind of a little bit flaunting and patronizing. He could have left out the in the presence of my enemies thing, right? I mean, he could have just said, you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. But no, no, no. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I love that. I love when God shows off. I hate to say it. And maybe it's wrong within me and I repent of it if it is. But I don't know what it is, but it's just really awesome when, when you see God work in your life because you obeyed him. You ever seen someone that just blatantly ignored God? Like God said they do it this way, they did it another way, and their whole life fell apart, didn't go well. If they had just kept God's commandments, they wouldn't be in the situation they're in now. And when you begin following Jesus in your life, when you begin saying, I'm not going to live some ambiguous life of some ambiguous God or force in the universe. I'm going to follow a personal Savior in Jesus who said he was the only way to the Father. Like when you begin doing that, people are not going to like you. In fact, you might even develop some enemies along the way because they don't like that you're so exclusive. They preach tolerance, but they're not tolerant of you saying that truth only has one facet. There's only one way of truth. I mean, you can't have truth if it's plural. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Therefore, it would cease to be truth. And a lot of people won't like you when you say, you know, I know, what you're, I know you're going this way in life. I love you, but I'm going to go this way. People will begin to be frustrated with you. They will judge you. They will say things about you. They'll call you weird. They'll call you judgmental because they're convicted about what they're doing in their own life. And they can't allow you to be right in following Jesus because if you're right, then that means that everything in their life is wrong. But I believe that we are called to shine God's glory in the presence of our enemies. Let's be honest, man. This city is changing rapidly for us, right? I mean... It would be real easy just to move to the suburbs, move to some rural Texas town where everyone thinks pretty much like I do, raise my kids, live my family. But no, I'm in Houston, Texas, the most diverse city in all of America. You could even make the argument that Houston, Texas might be the most pluralistic spiritual city in the entire world. And it's only going to become more so. I've heard it said that the next 20 years of the church, it's not going to be about being relevant. It's going to be about staying alive. We're going to really relate with David in the next 20 years, I think. But God will prepare a table for you in the presence of those enemies. He will anoint your head with oil. Your cup will overflow. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to close with a story.
in uh, Psalm 23, 1, David prays that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And in John chapter 10, Jesus begins telling people this story. And he says, he begins using this, this illustration of a, of a sheep and their shepherd. And um, once again, we hear this, and I don't think we really understand the gravity of what he's saying. This was a very common thing back in his day. And the relationship of a sheep and a shepherd uh, was very intimate. In fact, like the, once again, there was no cell phones, there was no internet, there was no picture capability. Like when a shepherd was living with sheep and taking care of them, that was his entire life for the most part, okay? It, it's kind of like Castaway with Tom Hanks when he's only got Wilson the ball, you know? Remember that? It's kind of like that with the sheep. Like you literally live with just a bunch of sheep, okay? And like I'm sure you talk to them and try to pet them and stuff. I mean, it probably gets pretty lonely out there. And it was so much so that literally there was so much time. They'd have maybe 100 sheep, and the shepherd would literally name every single one of them by name. And he would give every one of these 100 sheep a name, and he would clearly know their name. And each sheep would spend so much time with their shepherd that they would even know the sound of their shepherd's voice. Not just their name, but the sound of their shepherd's voice. And they could tell it apart from every other voice that they heard And Jesus begins to tell this interesting story. And he says that, imagine there's these sheep and there's a shepherd, but imagine the shepherd isn't really the the one that owns the sheep. They're not really his sheep. He's just a hired hand, okay? Imagine there's a hired hand just taking care of these sheep. What if a thief comes? What is that thief, I mean, what is that shepherd gonna do if they're not really his sheep and a thief comes and his life is being risked? What's he gonna do? Is he gonna stay with the sheep? No, he's gonna run. He's going to save himself. But Jesus says, what if that shepherd owns those sheep? And what if that shepherd knows every single name of every single sheep because they belong to him? And what if that shepherd has been there with those sheep as they've grown older and helped them up when they've fallen over? And, and what if that shepherd was the one that was there whenever two of them didn't get along or whenever one of them got sick? What if he was the one that led them to water and the green pastures and still waters every single day? What, what if it's that shepherd who owns them, who loves them, who's provided for them? What will that shepherd do if a thief comes? He will die for the sheep. In John ten eleven with everybody being perfectly familiar of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They would have all known this psalm. It was Jewish culture. They would have known it. Jesus comes and says, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the flock. You know what Jesus is saying there? You know how you know who really loves you? Find the one who died for you. If you can find that guy, you know that's the one who loves you. Don't find the one who uses you. Don't find the one who takes your money. Don't find the one who just has all these pithy statements that you don't fully understand. Don't just find the person that seems smart. Find the person who died for you. Jesus died for us. 
It's a historical fact. It's a theological fact. And it is what ultimately separates him from every other false religion in this world. Every other false idea, every other Ponzi scheme that creates a business because there's some new worldview, some new way of living life. Jesus' death is what separates him. This is why the cross is the central idea in our faith. Because this is how we know. And Jesus was living for three years, and he kept saying things like, people who, a, a true friend lays down his life for his friends. He kept saying, if you're loved, you, get, you die for somebody. When you love somebody, you'll give up your life. He kept saying this over and over. It's all throughout the Gospels. He kept saying this, and they had no idea. They just thought it was some pithy statement. And then Jesus goes up on the cross and dies for humanity. This is how you know. I think when we think of Jesus and the good shepherd, we think of like this, you know, I think we have a picture up here of like, it's a lamb. I couldn't find a sheep. So um, I think this is our common image of the shepherd, right? Like this is Jesus, the shepherd. He loves us. He's with us. But I think the real image of the shepherd is this next image. can leave it there. You see, you were created in the image of God for a great future, a great life, a great purpose. And we were sheep in God's pasture. And then the thief came after us. Sin came after us. Death came after us. And what did the good shepherd do for us? He died for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then Jesus comes to earth and says, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus is not only the fulfillment of every single psalm in the Bible. He's the fulfillment of every longing in your soul. And if we begin following him, we can change the world. Just like the disciples did. Just like the reformers did 500 years ago. If we really begin to give ourselves to prayer give ourselves to the word and love each other more than we love our preferences, if we can really get to that point and really surrender our lives for the good shepherd who we can trust because he died for us, watch out world because we're coming. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And God, we, every morning when we wake up, we sense that the thief has come for us. Every morning when we wake up, we know that death is lurking and we know that pain and suffering is lurking. But Jesus, what you came and said is that 
I have come that you will have abundant life, and I'm going to die so that I can make sure that it happens. And I pray that as we go forward as individuals and as a church, that we would have the faith to believe in Psalm 23. That if we can want you, if we can want the good shepherd, that everything else in our lives will be added to us. That if we seek the kingdom, then these things will come to us. God, excite us to follow you, Lord. I pray we would not do it out of a sense of guilt, but just because we see something so beautiful in Jesus and we begin just walking towards it and acting like it. I pray for the individuals in here right now, God, the ones that are in the valley, Lord. Lead them, Father. Lead them, Jesus, out of the valley. Lead them to still waters, green pastures. Send them the goodness and the abundance of mercy that you promised us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. We commit ourselves to your wonderful, exciting cause this morning. We pray all these things in the powerful name of the Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, in submission to God the Father. Amen. Would you all stand as we sing this last song together?